And one of the things that I learned early on is you have to be at the right place at the right time if you really want to grow and succeed, but you can't be at the right place at the right time if you're not there. So I made an effort to be everywhere that I possibly could. Every conference that showed up at campus, every you know industry advisory board, either I'd help set up or I'd just kind of sit outside the boardroom and wait for them to take a lunch break. And so my first introduction to the association world was at one of those industry advisory boards. is Associations Thrive, the podcast celebrating successful associations and their leaders. I'm your host, Joanna Pineda, CEO and Chief Troublemaker at Matrix Group International. Listen in as top association executives tell all, revealing the creative and innovative ways they're increasing membership, generating revenue, nurturing engagement, and reimagining their organizations. By the way, if you've launched a new initiative, created new member services, or updated your governance structure and are seeing great results, I want to hear your story and so do my listeners. I'd love to have you as a guest. Go to podcast.matrixgroup.net and apply to be on Associations Thrive. Now let's dive into this week's show. Today, I'm speaking with Michael McDonald, President of the Sewn Product Equipment and Suppliers of the Americas, or SPISA. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. You're one of the few people that has gotten our name completely right the first try. <laughs> Amazing. You know, I practice that. <laughs> hey, so Michael, tell us about SPISA. And you say that in Central and South America, they call it SPESA. So tell us about the organization. Yes. So phonetically, and I, I love to say we've got the longest acronym in the industry. I saw some of your other guests, so I think there's some longer acronyms in the association world. But yeah, so SPISA was created about 34 years ago, and it was actually created out of what was known as the Bobbin Show way back when. It was one of the largest shows in the apparel industry. And so SPISA's members are made up of the people that exhibit at that show. And a Bobbin is the little thing that has the thread in the sewing machine, right? Oh, yes. No, we, we love puns in our industry. We could talk later about behind the seams of our newsletter. And so we, we are a very punny industry. <laughs> <laughs> so it was you know a show that showed off sewing machines and cutting machines, all the equipment and software that went into the industry. And what was the largest in the world for a very long time, but they kind of started changing formats and changing things that the exhibitors didn't necessarily like. So SPISA was created as a trade union of the exhibitors so they could have you know, a unified voice and how the show should be run and how they could be better. It actually kind of showed the power of, of the association where the Bobbin Show didn't listen and it didn't survive. Oh. And so SPISA was born out of that. We took what the Bobbin Show had done and created a new trade show. We created the SPISA Expo, which is you know what we still run today. We've since found partners and people that we work with to improve the show. It's now called Text Process Americas, but it was born out of a trade show, created a trade show, and then has grown to what it is today, which is something that helps a global industry. Our members are from all over the world, six in Japan, seven in Germany, you know, four in Italy, but they're interested in, in the markets in the Americas. So we focus on the Americas, which is the last word of our acronym. But our, our members are from all over the world. And so we do trade shows, we do conferences, we do newsletters and networking. So, Michael, your members are 
sewn product equipment and suppliers. So give us examples of the types of products and services that they provide. Sure. So we are companies that do anything that goes from taking a piece of fabric and turning it into a t-shirt, a car seat, an airplane wing, anything that involves kind of sewing, printing, cutting. So that is our members. They make sewing machines, printing machines, cutting machines. They also make software. So beautiful 3D design, CAD software, also supply chain software, and then also services. So logistics, shipping, consulting, anything that's a supplier to the industry. But the, what we're unique in is, you know, there's probably about 30 associations in the textile, apparel, cut and sew world. We are the only one that's exclusive to a certain segment. We only represent suppliers to the industry. So we don't represent manufacturers, brands, retailers. Our members are members of all of those other associations. There's American Apparel and Footwear Association, National Council of Textile Organization. And our members are members of all of those, but they're members with their customers. So if they're in a boardroom sitting next to their customer, their customer's always right. So we were created so that they could have an independent voice and that SPISA could then speak for them on policy issues. We're not a lobbying organization. You know, I spent eight years as a lobbyist in D.C. I consider myself a reformed lobbyist. I still love policy, not the biggest fan of politics. And so when I joined with SPISA, it was because it was this exciting, energetic engineering group of people that I could support the industry without having to bang my head against a Senate office wall for the 200th time. <laughs> well, we'll talk about your journey in a second, but I have another question to ask you. And that is, so like I'm wearing a pair of Levi's jeans right now. And so your members provide the sewing machines and the equipment to make this pair of jeans. Yeah. Are the jeans still sewn by hand these days? What's the deal there? What's new? And I think this speaks to the goals of the organization. Absolutely. I mean, it speaks to our number one goal. It's funny. I can speak about this from so many different aspects, but my current soapbox crusade is sewing automation is, I honestly believe, the hardest engineering challenge in manufacturing. We've been able to privatize space travel, but we can't automate a sewing machine. So every pair of jeans that I buy is hand-sewn? Every jacket? Yes. Every car seat, that's all hand-sewn? Yeah, for the most part. It is possible to automate some sewing. Like, we can automate a pillow. You can do three lines, and they're straight lines. But the second you put it in a circle, it becomes an entirely different challenge. And there's a lot of work done in automation, but nothing's commercially viable. Nothing is to the point where it can actually be used by the industry because you're dealing with flexible fabrics. So the automotive industry is very automated because they're dealing with whether it's you know steel or carbon fiber or whatever the material they're using, it's hard. So a machine can grab it and weld it or do whatever they need to do. But when you're talking about cotton, if the machine tries to move it, they'll create a wrinkle. Uh. And then the stitch is wrong and it's bad. Replicating that human dexterity. It's less about the actual automation of the sewing, but the material handling is just a challenge that most other industries, whether it's automotive, aerospace, computers, like it's all hard material that they're dealing with. So flexible fabrics has created this unique challenge that we haven't been able to solve yet. So it's the hardest engineering challenge, but it's also the least funded. It makes me excited to really help work on it, but it's also a challenge that needs to be addressed. Is that perhaps why the textile industry has left America? Because we haven't been able to automate it. So then you're chasing less expensive labor. And that's why it's gone to China. And now I think I just bought something from Uniqlo while I was in New York earlier this week. And I think I read Philippines and Vietnam. Yeah, absolutely. I kind of use this anecdote where 
you know, we had better automation in the United States in our industry in the 1980s than we did in 2015. So coming around the early 90s, you know, when you started to have free trade agreements that allowed for more globalization, you know, first the industry moved to Mexico, then it moved to you know, Central America, then it moved to China. And the reality is that's not the first time that's happened. We've always been a transient industry going back thousands of years. I mean, whether it was the foundation of the U.S., like when British set up plantations and cotton farms and the textile industry in the U.S., it was because they weren't doing it there. It all, we always moved. Nice. We've been doing it for thousands of years. But for the last 30 or 40 years, we've been doing what's known as chasing the cheapest needle. We had some automation in the 1980s. When we started to move, we didn't just stop automating. We destroyed the equipment that we had already created. And so we really kind of set ourselves behind from an engineering perspective as an industry for 30 years. And it wasn't until the last seven that we've really started to focus on it. And that was maybe even being forced into it because labor prices started to go up in China. People started searching for the next China, but there will never be a next China. I mean, the cheapest labor the industry ever found was in China in about 2007. It was probably as, as low as it was going to get with the infrastructure necessary. And so you'll see, you know, we're moving manufacturing into Vietnam and the Philippines and Africa, but it's still kind of kicking the can down the road. Mm. The only way to really address the manufacturing challenge of the industry is through automation, through better manufacturing rather than cheaper manufacturing. And so we have this big push in the industry to come to the U.S., to reshoring, nearshoring, all those words. But it's not going to work the way that it worked in the 80s. Right. We don't have the infrastructure. We, don't, we definitely don't have the workforce. I use the story that when I was growing up, our industry was used as a threat. And our industry is like the textile, the cut and sew industry. Either you go to college or you have to go work in the textile mill down the street. So you were threatened with working in the cut and sew industry to encourage you to go to college. And, and now we're as an industry surprised why we can't get people to work in manufacturing our industry. So we need to change the perception. It's no longer, you know, sitting behind a sewing machine. It's you're an engineer. You're helping develop automation. You're doing coding on machines that can manufacture by themselves or creating 3D design so you don't have to create samples. So we need to make the industry more exciting. Wow. I apologize. That's a little bit of a tangent about more about the industry than the association, but it's, it's what keeps me passionate about it. I think the industry is one that everyone is interested in. So that's awesome. Thank you very much. So, Michael, before we get into the things that SPISA is doing to thrive and thriving you are with some new and different initiatives, let's talk about your journey. How did you get to become president of this organization? Oh, thank you. Yeah. So I have a very interesting journey that I, I love to kind of share. I kind of joke about our industry as a whole, that you're either born into it or tricked into it. Mm. Sometimes both. I was born into it. My father worked in the apparel industry for many, many, many years. He didn't push us into the industry. You know, my brother went into computer science. My sister started into sports marketing and, and now is the high exec on, you know, live event technology. So I'm the only one that kind of followed him into the industry. I didn't follow necessarily in his footsteps, but I was always interested in the industry. So I ended up going to the College of Textiles at NC State. And one of the things that I learned early on is... You have to be at the right place at the right time if you really want to grow and succeed, but you can't be at the right place at the right time if you're not there. So I made an effort to be everywhere that I possibly could. Every conference that showed up at campus, every you know industry advisory board, either I'd help set up or I'd just kind of sit outside the boardroom and wait for them to take a lunch break. Wow. And so my first introduction to the association world was at one of those industry advisory boards. I was helping onboard new members and I met a man named Matt Priest who runs the footwear distributors and retailers of America. 
And so I got to know him. And then when I graduated, I was still kind of trying to find what path I wanted to take. And so he was like, well, come work out of my office for two weeks and set up informational interviews. So I, I went to DC and I met with 15 different associations from the National Retail Federation to the Chamber of Commerce, anything that had anything related to our industry, meeting with those companies and just kind of learning what the association world was like in DC. And the very last informational interview I had was at the American Apparel and Footwear Association. And so I was kind of exhausted and I was at the end of like 15 meetings over, you know, seven days and it's like, okay, well, I'm very interested in what they're doing, but I need to get ready for the drive home. And so I went in, I started talking to them like, oh, this is really interesting. This is lobbying. This is trade. This is intellectual property. This is product safety, the chemical management. Like they handle everything. And, you know, at the end, the person I was talking to was like, we actually, you know, just lost one of our interns. You know, they got hired. So we have an opening. Are you interested? I was like, yeah. <laughs> and so I started off as an intern there. And then how I got my job is an interesting story. It always is. <laughs> it always is. So I was still staying in touch with Matt Priest, the head of the other association I worked with. And he was like, I'm looking to expand my team in a few months. You know, I'll let you know when I open the job position, you can come in and interview for it. And so I told my direct supervisor that I was planning on going and doing this interview. She ended up telling the head of the association. What I didn't know is that there was some history between our associations and, and those two people. So I can't say for sure that I was hired purely out of spite. <laughs> But it might have had something to do with me being hired at that association to keep me from working at the other association. There might have been some play in that. But I'll take it. <laughs> it set me on my career path today. So I, I was a lobbyist for about seven years. And I realized pretty late into it that I love policy. I love doing the research, trying to analyze the challenges, the problems, the solutions. I am not a fan of politics. Mm. So, you know, when I had certain issues that I was working on, one of our biggest issues back then was you know, Federal Prison Industries is a huge manufacturer of uniforms for the military. And so trying to figure out how to coexist the prison industry system with the private industrial system, I think I had 480 congressional meetings on House and Senate side over the course of about two and a half years. And all but one person was like, absolutely, like this is something that needs to be addressed and nothing got accomplished. Uh. And it was just banging my head against the wall, which again, I'm so grateful that there are people that have the internal fortitude to be lobbyists. We need lobbyists. I will always support my lobbyists. I'll do every bit of research in the world and I'll hand them to my former coworkers at the association who I'm still very close with to lobby on it, but it's just not for me. And so I left there to go back to get my PhD. And actually, my PhD was very policy-driven, very policy-based. I'm still working on that path. I'm doing the long track of the, the dissertation. But then I went back into my old habits of being everywhere that I could. And so whenever I would go brain dead writing a paper or, or run out of energy, I would walk the halls of the professors. And if there was somebody sitting in their office, I'd pop in and say hi. So I did that with, he was the head of the department at the time. I was talking to him and he got a phone call. It was my predecessor saying... This is your predecessor at SPISA. Yes. My predecessors at SPISA you know, mentioned to the department head that they were looking at retiring. Did he have any suggestions of people that might be interested in the job? It's like, well, I'm sitting across the table from somebody that has association experience. Nice. And that was how I was introduced to SPISA. Wow. Pure chance. <laughs> and so I, I had met them before at association events, but we weren't close. We didn't have a lot of interaction. But so he asked me, like, are you interested in this? And my first instinct was absolutely not. I do not want to get back into the association world because my experience with it was lobbying. 
But once I got to know them, got to know their members, got to know this side of the industry, it was it was an easy decision. And it was a husband and wife team that ran that association. And so once I started going down the path, I was like, oh, maybe I can do that. And so I talked to my wife about it. Like, you know, she was working in PR at the time and had a very stressful, uh, long hours PR firm job. And so we're like, well, if we could do this together, let's try it. And so we did. Wow. So the two of you run the association and obviously have a family together. Yes. We're lucky that we have a team of three. Somebody actually used to work in the AFA. I, I still say I tricked her into coming down and she probably agrees that I did. <laughs> we didn't make it easy on her. We, we told her the first day she started, like, all right, well, we'll onboard you for you know, about two or three weeks, but Maggie's pregnant, so we might have a kid soon. She went into labor the next day. Ah, he totally tricked her. So, like, all right, well, you're in charge. <laughs> Wow. So how long have you been president of SPISA? So I've been president for about four years. So my predecessors ran it for about 30 years as the husband and wife team, and, and we've been running it for about four now. And three years during a pandemic. So yes. let's talk about the things that you're doing to help SPISA thrive, because you're making some big changes in 2023. Yeah, we've made a, a lot of big changes. I mean, the pandemic has forced some of it. Personality has pushed some of it. But we've definitely changed our event schedule to just make it different. And I think that's been our biggest focus over the last year and a half, two years, is how do we just make things different? Because the same isn't going to work anymore. Mm. As the pandemic kind of weaned off and people started to come back out, there was enthusiasm. But it's a different world in the association world of both you know, attendee, speakers, concepts. So having you know, speakers come up and give PowerPoint presentations just doesn't, audiences don't like that anymore. I mean, they've had enough Zoom webinars. Because they can watch it on YouTube. Exactly. Well, let's talk about your executive conference because that's coming up and you're doing something different. So it's in Puerto Rico where I just was in January, beautiful place. So why Puerto Rico and how are you doing that differently? So our executive conference, we move around every year. We, we do it once a year in a different location. We've gone to Boston, San Antonio, New Orleans. So but we've been all around the continental US. And there were some in Mexico about 20, 25 years ago. But we chose Puerto Rico, you know, because species of the Americas, we represent North, Central, and South America. So Puerto Rico is this central hub where it's an American territory. So any of our US members don't need a passport, don't need a visa. So it's easy for them to get to, but it's also located close to some of the largest industrial hubs in Central America. And so that's right. Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala, but then also Dominican Republic is, you know, just a, a hop, skip and jump away. So we're trying to bring those two industrial bases together. Puerto Rico, we, we fondly say it's the best kept secret and made in America oh. because Puerto Rico is still made in America. It's an American territory. So you have this hefty military industrial base because military has to be, their uniforms have to be made in America. And so a lot of them are made in Puerto Rico. So we get to promote this made in America industrial base that doesn't really exist anywhere else. There's not a lot of 200 sewing machine factories in the continental United States. Like The biggest industrial base is in Los Angeles, but it's a lot of really small shops. Right. Puerto Rico has this industrial base that doesn't get a lot of attention. Not many people know about it. But then also it allows us to have conversations about, well, how do we work with Central America? How do we, how do we grow the Western Hemisphere as a whole? And create these partnerships. And so the conference itself, you know, usually will always come in and do keynote presentations. I love panel conversations. Usually I'll tell my speakers, stay away from PowerPoints. I'm going to make it as easy on you as possible. If you know about manufacturing and you're passionate about the industry, I want you to speak. 
And so we'll, we'll bring them in, we'll have panel conversations. But in Puerto Rico, we're actually cutting a full day of of education to do tours, to do factory tours. Ah, and this is new. Yes. This is something we've never done before. It's not something that anybody's done in Puerto Rico before in a very long time. So showcasing, you know, one, what does Puerto Rico have to offer? So we can learn about the industrial base there. But also one of the things that I'm most excited about that makes our association unique is that we bring to our conferences the engineers from the equipment side. So the guys that are actually making the sewing machines, the manufacturers that are using those equipment and the brands and retailers that are getting the end product. So if you put all of those people together in a factory, you can have one of the best brainstorming sessions of why is it set up this way? Why do you have you know this unit here and this unit here? Are you using lean manufacturing? Are you, you can ask all these questions with these different aspects of the industry to just have a conversation about how do we make it better? So the factories we're touring get the benefit of this massive... Brain trust. Yeah, brain trust. But then also everybody that's a part of that brain trust gets to have this conversation in real time, like with actual visualizations, not just in a conference room. Wow. So it's a really exciting opportunity to kind of, can we leave the factories we visit better than we showed up? And if we can do that, then everybody benefits from it. We get the knowledge base, they get better manufacturing practices. So it's really exciting. Amazing. But you're also doing a second executive conference in Philadelphia in October, and that's different too. Yes. When I started with Spisa, and again, what I love about the industry is just how collaborative it is. There are the association worlds, how collaborative it is. But one of the challenges is I've said that you could go to a different trade show every week at a different conference every day. There is oversaturation of conferences and trade shows in the association world in our industry. And so one of my goals is I will never put on, you know, we have our executive conference and we have our trade shows. I will never put on another conference without partnering with someone else if I can. Interesting. If there's somebody to partner with, I will partner with that company or that association or that governmental entity, whatever it is, any way that we can bring different groups of people together, but then also just save them time. If there's two executive conferences from two different associations that we can combine into one, that means they get all of the information of those two conferences with less travel, less time, and just a more diverse group. And so I've made it a true mission to partner with other associations at every opportunity possible. You know, we'll, we'll put on the conferences that are staples to us, but I will not add to our conference agenda unless I am partnering with another association. I don't need to add something else to my members' calendars. They're full enough as they are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So who are you partnering with in Philadelphia? So we're partnering with a group called the International Apparel Federation. And actually, what makes them interesting is they are the association of associations in our industry. So they are a very global industry. So they, you know, members are both manufacturers of brands, but then also, you know, the BGMEA, Bangladeshi Garment Manufacturers Association, and the Turkish Manufacturers Association, the Taiwanese Manufacturers Association. And so they represent all those associations come together under the International Apparel Federation. And so we're partnering with them to bring them to the United States because we have a, it's what's called the World Fashion Convention. So in Puerto Rico, we're doing really technical talking about manufacturing, digging into kind of the, the nuts and bolts of manufacturing in Philadelphia, partnering with the World Fashion Convention. We get to talk about more broader topics, so sustainability, circularity, nice supply chain disruption and management and, and risk management. And so it's a completely different conference while still like kind of living under you know our same umbrella. And so... That will be a much bigger crowd, a much broader conversation, but it kind of fits into our 
mantra of just doing things differently. Right. And you're going to have more than double the normal attendees at this conference. That's what we expect. It actually excites me. Um, it's the first time we've ever been able to do a full hotel buyout, oh. which is getting really into the nuts and bolts of associations. But I personally hate dealing with hotels recently. It's been a real challenge. Yeah. But if we do a full buyout, we are their only customer at the moment. And they have our hotel in Philadelphia has been so much more responsive and helpful and kind. And so that's a good tip. Yes. <laughs> and I'm looking for any tips to how to work better with hotels. That's that's a real challenge that I'll have an answer to. You know what? I'll have to think about that in future podcast episodes. Like what tips do we have for dealing with hotels and convention centers? Oh, yes. Hey, so Michael, you've also got a big trade show. You talked about how Text Process Americas is a big signature event for you. That's your trade show. And you're kind of reinventing that too. So tell us about that. Yeah. So, you know, the last one, we had a show in, in 2022. We were supposed to have one in 2020. And this is a trade show, like pure trade show. Yes. Big old trade show where you get lots of noisy pieces of equipment, some quiet pieces of equipment, but yeah, big cutting machines, sewing machines, printing machines where people can come in. It's one of the things that honestly was unable to be replicated during the pandemic. It cannot be done virtually. You need to be able to touch, see, and feel some of these machines to really see how they work. But yeah, so you know, we had to cancel one during the pandemic, which threw off our schedule. And so you know, we had a show in 22. We'll have another one coming up in May. So we'll have two shows in a row, which we've never done before. And so because it was already different, it gave us the leeway to just go all in. It might be smaller, but it's going to be different. Mm. And we're going to throw everything we can at the wall for this show to see what sticks. If something doesn't work, that's fine. There's enough new stuff that we're doing with this show to be able to learn and make every existing show better. The worst thing we could have done is just had the same show two years in a row because then it would hurt our show for the next 30 years to come. And so we are focusing more on small businesses, companies that typically didn't exhibit at trade shows either because they just don't know about trade shows, how to utilize them. They don't have the funding to get a big booth. So we're doing you know, a technology pavilion, a startup pavilion that we're combining. And then we're focusing on just on the show floor engagement. So we're doing training. We actually are setting up a training program for sewing machine mechanics on the show floor. Ooh. So somebody can either actually sit down and get a real lesson that would cost hundreds or thousands of dollars on the show floor to how to fix a single stitch sewing machine or or another piece of equipment. But then we're also showing off technology. You know, we have a, a member that's creating assisted reality where you can put on the Google Glass is the best example I could use, but a headset that then somebody at the computer could see their hands, tell them, oh, turn that knob, touch that piece of the sewing machine to fix it. And so it allows us to globalize training because we have a real problem with training in our industry. There's no training programs that exist and it's hard to send people to the ones that do. And so we're trying to figure out how do we make it digital? So there are no training programs in the U.S.? Not to any sort of significant scale. And the problem with the U.S. is because it's so big, you know, if you have a training program in South Carolina, we're not getting people to be sent from Michigan or Oregon or California. Right. So there are a few exist, but nothing that's scalable, nothing that could really support the entire industry. And sewing machine mechanics is actually a real challenge. Like in Texas, there's one guy. It'll show up sometime between Tuesday and two months from now. So if you have sewing machines breaking down, you stop manufacturing. <laughs> oh, my God. One guy. Yeah. 
<laughs> and I, he's probably retired at this point because that was eight years ago and when I met that one guy. <laughs> so how do we do training? How do we create all these aspects that we can then expand outside of the show? Yeah, so we're excited to just try everything we can that's new in 2023 and then build from there. So three exciting events. But, you know, I was cruising your website before this interview, and you just published a State of the Union. And I was really kind of intrigued by that. What's the State of the Union? You just issued it. And what's big and new for SpeedSign 23? So State of the Union is actually the brainchild of Marie Davignon, who is our co-worker. We're, we're very, very lucky that she's on board. She keeps me and my wife sane. But she came up with the idea, I think, about four years ago during you know the U.S. State of the Union, like, what is the state of our union? Mm. So it started off as a state of our union, talking about the industry. And so what is going on? What is the state of the industrial base? And it changes every year. So that was kind of how it started. But then it gave us the way to engage with our membership and give them a concise update on everything that the association did over the last year. And so, you know, we've done member reports and We'll have a membership meeting at every conference as all associations you know, legally have to do. And so give it an update of the association. But this gave us the chance to really showcase what we as an association are doing, but then also what is the state of the industry? What is the state of the industry in the US and Central America? And so it was just a fun way for us to engage our membership through our behind the scenes newsletter, which is we're really, we've got about 17,000 people on our newsletter, which it's big for our industry. I'm sure it's small to some of your other guests, but that's big. It lets us engage. And so the, the newsletter itself allows us to talk about what our members are doing, but then also just general information about the industry. And because, you know, we're a small association, we're not fighting with other publications. We'll promote and support any other publications in the industry and, and showcase their news as well. Behind the scenes is interesting because most associations, their newsletter is really targeting the membership. But with behind the scenes, you're promoting the membership to a wider audience. So presumably customers and potential customers. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Anybody that would show up to the trade show is somebody that would be getting our newsletter. And so it, it allows to kind of have those touch points where if they, if they only see the equipment, go to the, our trade show once every two years. And this allows them to let them know what's going on in between, you know, every two years. Wow. So, Michael, you're going to have an amazing year. Three events that you've reimagined, a new State of the Union where you're also making some changes to your newsletter. So I hope you'll come back and tell us about what 23 was like. But before we go, I have a new thing that I want to do at this podcast, and that is to ask my guests what is your superpower that you use, you know, almost every day as head of this organization? I love that question. I mean, honestly, I love it a little bit selfishly because I kind of use that same description of, you know, I'll tell people my superpower. I don't know if it's a real superpower, but I like it. I, I don't know anything. I, I know enough to know just how vast and how broad the industry I work in is. It's everywhere from manufacturing to engineering to software. I don't know anything when it comes to this industry. But I know someone that knows everything. Ah, I guess my life in the association world is I've built a network of experts. And so I don't need to know anything. I know enough to know exactly who somebody should ask if they have a real question. So I always call that my superpowers. I don't know anything, but I know someone that knows about everything. <laughs> I think that's an amazing superpower. Michael, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Associations Thrive. 
We're so glad to have you here. You know, my personal mission and the mission of my company, Matrix Group International, is to help associations and nonprofits increase membership, generate revenue, and thrive in the digital space. I want to hear stories of how your organization is thriving in today's challenging landscape. Please apply to be on my show by going to podcast.matrixgroup.net. By the way, do you need help with a digital initiative? Maybe it's a website redesign, a new membership database, or a hybrid meeting that you're planning. I'd love to connect with you. Please visit the Matrix Group website at matrixgroup.net. Thanks again for listening to this week's episode of Associations Thrive. Don't forget to subscribe to the show, leave a five-star rating, post a comment, and share it with your colleagues and friends. Bye.